This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 386th episode, we have a bunch of news, including a triceratops that injured another triceratops and a T-Rex that fed on another T-Rex. Ooh, a lot of intraspecies combat going on. Yeah, and eating. <laughs> we also have dinosaur of the day, Euskelosaurus, and of course, a fun fact, which Sabrina's doing. I think it's about a sauropod. Spoiler alert. We've got a big sauropod theme going on in this episode as well. <laughs> as is often the case when Sabrina's involved. <laughs> <laughs> but before we get into all that, we want to thank some of our patrons. And this week, we'd like to thank Trev, Achilosaurus, Arya and Tristanosaurus, Joey, Ayumi, Kalen, Jurassic Jim, Alone Dingo, Kessler, and Neolovenator. Awesome. Thank you so much for supporting us and being a part of our dinosaur community. Jumping into the news. I like saying that. Yeah, it is fun to say. That's why I say it like that. <laughs> <laughs> Researchers found that Big John, the Triceratops hortus, was injured by another ceratopsian. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so a quick recap about Big John, and this is thanks to an article on Live Science. Big John was about 26 feet or 8 meters long, and the skull was 6.6 feet or 2 meters wide. The skeleton of Big John is about 60% complete. Now, Big John was found back in 2014 and sold for about 7.2 million U.S. dollars at auction last year, and it's a bit controversial because it's a privately owned fossil. That is more than a bit controversial. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was being generous. So because Big John is privately owned, currently only a small sample of the lesion, the part we're talking about where, you know, the pathology, the injury happened, is available to researchers. But eventually the skeleton will be available for scientific study. So that's something. It is. Whether or not anybody wants to study it and if any journals will publish it if it's privately owned is a different question, I guess. Well, I think the team that worked on this paper would probably want to continue studying it, and they managed to get it published. So, yeah. This team, they published an open access paper, scientific reports. This is by Ruggiero D'Anastasio and others, and it is specifically about this combat lesion, is how they put it, in Triceratops. Big John the skeleton was prepared in Italy before the auction, and during preparation they found this lesion or traumatic injury. There's a hole on the right side of the frill, and you can see it in the figures. It's very clear. It's pretty cool. It's shaped like a keyhole, is how they put it. 
The injury is about 8 inches or 20 centimeters by 2 inches or 5 centimeters. That's a really big lesion. Yes. So when you say it's keyhole shaped, does that mean there's like a hole in the top and then sort of a line sticking down from it? Kind of, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Looking at it, I don't know that I would have said keyhole shaped. Maybe it depends on the key. But it's really big. It's easily noticeable. And it's very elongated. Oh, you know what? I guess it is kind of keyhole shaped at the top because it's a little bit wider at the top. At least that's my interpretation based on the pictures. Luckily, this is open access, so anyone can look at these figures. There's two hypotheses that this hole was from some sort of trauma or there was bone resorption due to aging. At least that's what the researchers started thinking about before they did the analysis. So they did histology and they chemically analyzed the bone sample and they found that there was newly formed bone tissue. So the bone was remodeling. And they concluded that this hole was due to trauma. And when Big John died, the frill was still healing. And that this lesion was possibly caused by another Triceratops's horn. It appears that Big John was wounded from behind. Oh, weird. I'm used to thinking of Triceratops going face to face and sort of scraping up each other's frills with their horns. Yeah. But getting one from behind is really awkward. Yes. And this is in the frill, right? Yes. Huh. So no idea how that happened. Maybe it somehow snuck up on it. Maybe it was an accident. I don't know. Or they were, I mean, even though the hole may have entered from behind, doesn't necessarily mean that one Triceratops was entirely behind the other one. Because mm -hmm. if it turns its head to the side and the other one's sort of next to it, you might be able to get behind the frill that way. So I do want to just mention the authors do say in the study that this confirms that Triceratops fought each other. But there are some scientists have questioned, like in the Live Science article, Spencer Lucas suggested maybe it's not Triceratops, maybe it's Taurosaurus. Uh, oh, oh, I see. <laughs> Which is why I say ceratopsian, a ceratopsian attack. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but anyway, back to the injury happening from behind. In the study, they wrote, quote, whereby the rival's horn would have penetrated the frill and then slipped towards the rostrum, giving this lesion the shape of a keyhole, end quote. Maybe I'm just not familiar enough with keyholes. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. I agree with you. I don't think it looks that much like a keyhole. It looks more like a squash or a zucchini mm. or something where it's a little bit more bulbous on one end than the other. But that is the sort of thing you might expect if something stabbed in in one spot, there'd be a larger opening. And then if you scrape along to the other side, it might get a little thinner out at the other side. And as it sort of comes back out of the frill. Yeah. Maybe it also looks more keyhole shaped if you're actually looking at it. Maybe. So anyway, Big John survived this injury, at least for a little while. It's hard to know how long exactly this Triceratops Big John lived after, but based on the size of the injury and the amount of bone repair, the authors estimated that Big John lived at least six months after getting injured. But Big John did die before fully healing. Yeah, that's for sure. There's still a big hole. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> Anyway, so again, they confirmed that these Ceratopsians, they fought each other. It could be that the frill of Triceratops then was, you know, for display, but also to help it with attacking and defending against other Ceratopsians. And same goes for their horns. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think we've seen before the talk of which horns might have been used for display versus combat. Mm-hmm. And in Ceratopsians, there's a lot of overlap there between display and combat, which kind of makes sense. I mean, if you can use a display structure for combat, it sort of reinforces both of those. Because oh, yeah. the bigger and showier it is, the more impressive a display it is, but also potentially the more impressive of a weapon it is. Yeah. So it can definitely support both features. And I would have thought with a frill, it'd be more like a shield, but mm-hmm. yeah, it could also be a weapon. Maybe. I, I think the sh- the shield as a frill is probably a better guess. So now that we've talked about triceratops attacking each other, or maybe just ceratopsians attacking each other, we can talk about some tyrannosaur on tyrannosaur action. (laughs) (laughs) So this new find comes out of a new T-Rex specimen that was discovered, and it was published somewhere. I can't really tell who published it. The publication actually reads a little more like a flyer for a sale than a scientific journal, Mm. and there isn't any indication of whether or not it was peer-reviewed, but it does have three authors listed, including David Burnham as the lead author, among others, and there's a lot of really cool details about the find, so I think it's worth sharing. It's been picked up by multiple media sources, all in New Zealand, for reasons which will become clear. But (laughs) (laughs) So mysterious. Yeah. It was found in northeastern Wyoming near the border with South Dakota. So no, it's not a New Zealand Tyrannosaurus, unfortunately. It's actually a little bit closer to the Crazy Horse Memorial and Mount Rushmore than to Devil's Tower. It gives Mm. you a little bit of an idea about where it is if you're familiar with the area. They had to excavate 1,800 square feet or about 170 square meters of ground in order to excavate the Tyrannosaurus. Ooh, it's a big one. It is. And it's also a little bit scattered, as is often the case. And I think you want to excavate a little bit extra, too, to make sure that you're not missing any bones. Usually they go a couple meters beyond the limits in each direction just to make sure that there isn't something just out of view. Because in this case, it wasn't fully articulated. So that means that you never know if there's going to be another bone if you look just a little bit farther because everything's already all spread out from being... I don't know, disarticulated during the taphonomy process. The way it was buried, yep. Yeah, and well, even before it was buried, it died and the bones got scattered a little bit. Oh, yeah. So this new Tyrannosaurus is nicknamed Peter, and I have no idea why. (laughs) (laughs) I looked around a little bit. I couldn't find it anywhere. And if you Google Peter T-Rex, you just find a bunch of stuff on Pete Larson. Makes a lot of sense. Because he's the guy that found Sue and Stan. Well, not specifically found, but is affiliated. Associated, yeah. So, yeah, Peter and T-Rex are sort of already SEO'd away from the specimen. Maybe it's after him. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, it was found in Wyoming, and I don't think he was involved with it. So, I don't know. It's it's weird to me. They reference all over the place that it's nicknamed Peter, and even in the paper it says, nickname, Peter. Nothing else. <laughs> it's like, that's just the whole thing that they have to say about where the name came from. But it also has an official name, which is AWMMIL2022.9, mm-hmm. 2022, because that's when they got it. And AWMM is for the Auckland War Memorial Museum, also known just as the Auckland Museum. And that's why there's all the media coverage in New Zealand. Yes, exactly. It should already be on display by the time this episode is released. It's supposed to be open to the public on April 15th. And 
even though it has a specimen number for the Auckland Museum, I'm not actually sure if they own it (laughs) (laughs) because it's reportedly only going to be on display until September 4th, which is really weird for a museum specimen. Usually if a museum buys a big T-Rex and they put it on display, it stays on display. Unless they're planning to do more research. Maybe, but they they talk about in the paper how they did photogrammetry on it. Oh, I see. So that they, even though while it's on display, they can continue to do research. Although I think you're right. They did mention some aspects of it where they want to either put it in a synchrotron or do some other sort of CT scanning so that they can see inside the bones, which you obviously can't do while it's in a mount. I think this is probably the fastest I've seen for a T-Rex being found to being put on display. I think Peter was actually found back in 2018, which is pretty recent. So within four years. Yeah. And the authors say Peter is about 47% complete by quote unquote bone density, Hmm. which is basically the volume percent of bone compared to the complete skeleton. So for example, if you have just the legs, you have like a third of a T-Rex, even though it might only be like five, six bones because those bones are so much bigger than all the other bones by volume. It's probably the best way to measure the completeness of a fossil because counting out like the individual bones of the sclerotic ring is obviously not as, you know, you can have as many bones in the sclerotic ring as like the rest of the skull combined. Right. And obviously those are not equal. Then you might feel misled if you saw it. Yeah, (laughs) we found two sclerotic rings. It's 20% complete. It's just like a little tiny dish. So by bone count, Peter is probably more like 20% complete since they mostly found big bones. But that's actually probably a good thing if you want to see a display of it. Yeah. They found a lot of the big bones. And they did find a good portion of the skeleton, especially around the legs. They found most of both legs, except for most of the toe bones are missing. Hmm. They have hips, sacral vertebrae, and a lot of vertebrae at the base of the tail, and most, if not all, of the back vertebrae. Nice. They also have some ribs, scapula, the top back of the skull, basically around the eye and brain case type area, and the back of the jaw. But unfortunately, they're missing the toothy parts of the skull and sort of the front of the snout, which is really some of the most exciting parts of a T-Rex. And as usual, they didn't find any of the arms or hands. Okay. Which is, I wish we found those more often because we still don't really know enough about T-Rex hands. Why were they that size? Mm Mm-hmm. Like I said, they did photogrammetry of the bones, so there should be a good backup and research should be able to continue even while it's on display. And the fossils are a really pretty color. They're mixed between sort of dark brown and black. They call it one of four T-Rex specimens with a black color, although I think most of it is more of a dark brown, but there certainly are some really dark black pieces to it, which makes it look really cool. Yeah, like the black beauty specimen in Royal Tyrrell. Yes. I wanted to compare the two, but it's hard because I think the Royal Tyrrell one, the percent complete is based on the number of bones. Mm. And they found, I think, pretty much a complete skull with Black Beauty. Yeah, because they have it set to the side. It's too heavy to be mounted. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not sure exactly what they based the remainder of the skull on. They might have used Black Beauty, or maybe they used a different specimen and just colored it black. But it looks really cool. They also found pieces of a Triceratops frill and Edmontosaurus hips, 
but they didn't mention any indication that the T-Rex had interacted with them in any way. So it's probable that they weren't even there at the same time that, you know, one of them died and was buried a hundred years before the others. They're just roughly in the same stratigraphic layer. Part of that taphonomy. Yep. It's considered an adult or nearly adult in size at about four meters tall and about 12 meters long or 13 feet tall and 39 feet long. Pretty big. I'm not sure how precise that estimate is because that might just be sort of an overall estimate for T-Rex, especially considering, you know, we don't have the full length of the tail. But it is, yeah, nearly adult size, if not adult size. The most interesting details about Peter are the pathologies. The leg bones have multiple teeth marks on them, including a set of three scrapes about an inch apart, which is interpreted as Tyrannosaurus cannibalism because that's the the sort of tooth pattern and size and shape and all that sort of thing that match the scrape marks the best. Interesting. Yeah. I'm always fascinated by cannibalism in dinosaurs. Yeah, I mean, it's really, I think I had a fun fact about this once that like almost everything does cannibalism, especially predatory things mm-hmm. out in nature. It's like how almost everything is a scavenger. Yeah, just whatever's an easy meal. Yeah. So if you're a Tyrannosaurus and you're really hungry and there's a dead Tyrannosaurus nearby, you're very likely going to eat a piece of it, especially if it's fresh. But whether or not this Tyrannosaurus killed Peter, or I should say the other Tyrannosaurus killed Peter, we don't know. Yeah. That is much harder to figure out. Yeah. And there just, there aren't any key signs. Like there isn't a big puncture in the skull, for example, that looks like an attacky bite. All the tooth marks that we have are basically on the legs, and the legs aren't where you would attack an animal in order to kill it, presumably. Even if we had that, though, it would be really hard to know if they were fighting just because, you know, over territory or mates or something like that versus cannibalism. Yeah, but I think if you could determine that the T-Rex killed Peter and then we have these scrape marks on the bones. Mm. It seems like it definitely was eating it. Yeah. <laughs> because you don't scrape your teeth along the leg bone of an animal unless you're eating it. So there was it was definitely cannibalism, but whether or not it killed it before it cannibalized it, we don't know. Yeah. The tibia and femur also look like they may have been crushed by a bite. Because <laughs> they got those bone-crushing bites. Exactly. And it's similar to the purported Tyrannosaur cannibalism from New Mexico we talked about in episode 333, where it looks like the bone was in the mouth and they basically crushed it and it collapsed in on itself. They also found smaller tooth marks on the bones, which they say could be from a juvenile T-Rex. And that, if you really want to get all way out into left field of hypotheses, it could mean that an adult and a juvenile T-Rex were chewing on Peter together in even farther afield, you know, just random speculation. It could mean that this was an adult and its baby T-Rex that was like training how to hunt or training how to scavenge or whatever, or they were just walking along like a a duckling (laughs) following the mama or the papa T-Rex, and that could be what happened. But again, there isn't a smoking gun to show whether Peter was killed by a Tyrannosaurus or if it was just scavenged by it. But sounds like a really cool fossil. Yeah. And if you're on the North Island of New Zealand, it's probably your best chance to see a Tyrannosaurus for a while. So I'd probably try to get there before September. Yeah, sounds like a good display. 
Hopefully it stays on display too and is available to researchers. Yeah. Or, you know, they take it off for a little while and then it comes back. Mm-hmm. And Sabrina has a whole bunch of sauropod news. But first, we're going to take a quick sponsor break. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So back to the news, which is mostly sauropods, because I couldn't help myself. (laughs) I'll start with... Amargosaurus, Ignacio Cerda and others published an update on Amargosaurus in Journal of Anatomy. Unfortunately, I only had access to the abstract, so this will be short. We did cover Amargosaurus as our dinosaur of the day in episode 157, if you want to hear more. And now for this update, the team looked at Amargosaurus and an indeterminate dicreosaurid. Which Amargosaurus is a dicreosaurid. Yes. Those are the ones with the, the big spines on the neck. Yes, this paper is all about the spines on the neck. So these two specimens, they came from the same formation, La Amara in Argentina. And again, the team looked at the spines on the neck, also known as their hemispinous processes. They analyzed to see if the spines were more for horn structures or a sail or a hump like a bison. Mm. Same thing we talk about with spinosaurs. Yeah. Yeah, I mostly see them depicted as either a horn or sail. I have never seen it depicted as a hump. Yeah. Well, now there's some paleo art out there with several different depictions. It's pretty (laughs) cool. They also did histology. They found no support for there being horns on the neck. There's no keratin sheath. 
Well, okay. Yeah, that's usually you can tell by the surface of the bone, or not maybe not usually, but sometimes you can tell from the surface of the bone if there might have been a keratin covering on it. That's interesting because I definitely see it depicted as sort of keratiny on yes. top of bone pretty often. That's what I'm saying. The the art is really cool and interesting now because it it is so different. They found that the way the ligaments were distributed that helps show that Amargosaurus and relatives, like other dicreosaurids, like Bahatosaurus, had a sail on its neck, and the sail possibly connected the spines. Interesting. Yeah, so they're thinking it had a sail, it might have been used for display, but more studies needed to figure out exactly what the sails looked like. I presume that they had the two parallel sails running the length of the neck, and not some sort of other sail i can't even imagine how a sail would work unless it was two parallel sails when the picture preview yes they are parallel sails mostly though i was enjoying what people were posting on twitter their interpretations (laughs) did somebody give it a bison hump yeah something more hump like it seems like that would be really tricky because the neck is already just a really difficult thing to hold up with all that leverage so far from the shoulders mm-hmm. that if you had a hump like a bison where it's storing water and fat and yeah. things in it, <laughs> it would really weigh down the neck. That seems really problematic. Which is not what you see in sauropod necks usually. No. Whereas a sail, you could see like, oh, okay, it's trying to look bigger. Mm-hmm. Animals try to look bigger all the time. Maybe that's what Spinosaurus was doing too. Although I don't think these spines are particularly analogous to Spinosaurus because they are a pretty different shape. Yeah. So mostly I'm just thinking I've heard the sails or the spines of different Spinosaurids is like, was it a hump? Was it a sail? Yeah. Yeah. Hadn't heard as much about horns for them. But anyway. This could be one of those convergent evolution things where both Spinosaurus and Amargosaurus and the other Dicreosaurids were evolving sails for the same reason, along with Aranosaurus, mm-hmm. the crazy ornithopod. Maybe they all needed sails for something, and we just haven't figured out why they needed them yet. Yeah. Like to cool off or something. Could be. So yeah, I hope there's more research done on this. The next study is about how sauropodomorphs might have become larger earlier than we expected. And this was published in Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology by Rodrigo Mueller and others. I wonder which ones they're talking about, because we already have some really big sauropodomorphs from even the very end of the Triassic, early Jurassic, like Ladumahati. Well, this one that they studied was an indeterminate sauropodomorph from the late Triassic in what is now Brazil. But this specimen was larger than most sauropodomorphs that lived that around the same time as it or earlier, and, quote, about 3.2 times heavier than Buriolestes schultzi, the earliest branching sauropodomorph, end quote. Okay, so this is, even though it's late Triassic, it's really early in sauropodomorph evolution, it sounds like. Yeah, and they're estimated that it weighed about 46 pounds or 21 kilograms. <laughs> compared to Buriolestes, which weighed about 15 pounds or 7 kilograms. Yeah, that sounds hilariously lightweight until you hear the comparison. But even then, small, like a medium-sized dog in weight is not... But in the late Triassic? Yeah, Yeah. not just the late Triassic. It has to be the beginning of the late Triassic for that to be considered anything other than tiny. (laughs) (laughs) I guess. 
This specimen did still have slender hind limbs and limbs with proportions that we know it could run, like other sauropodomorphs, even though it was pretty large for a sauropodomorph. At that time. At that time, yes. So the specimen that they found includes caudal vertebrae, part of the arm, part of the hand, part of the pelvis, the thigh bone, the left thigh bone, the left lower leg, and part of the left foot bone. And based on the relative size of the bones and the fact that there weren't any duplicate bones found and all the bones were found near each other, they think they all came from the same individual. They also think that this individual was skeletally mature based on it not having sutures. This specimen was from an area where a few different sauropodomorphs have been found, like Bagualosaurus and Pompadromaeus. So it could be that this specimen is one of those dinosaurs, but they'd need more fossils to know, for sure. Gotcha. Yeah, I was waiting for you to say what the name of the new dinosaur was, but (laughs) they resisted the urge. No name yet. The authors said that it may be that this specimen is, quote, one of the oldest examples of body increased size within sauropodomorpha, end quote. And it could also be that the known smaller sauropodomorph specimens are not fully grown individuals, and so sauropodomorphs in general, might have been larger than we currently think they were. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing this is like 230 million years ago is my assumption based on the dinosaurs you're talking about. Yeah, it's from around the Carnian age. Yeah, those are like the very earliest sauropodomorphs. So that's like 30 million years before Ledumahati. So it's not really fair to compare. <laughs> <laughs> it was big for its time. <laughs> but just not big for really any other comparison (laughs) there were mammals in the mesozoic that were about that big it was laying the groundwork for the larger later sauropods okay (laughs) all right so i'll talk about next an actual sauropod not just a sauropodomorph yes patagosaurus femke holwerda and others published about this in geodiversitas Again, I only had access to the abstract of this one, and it's a little bit of an older paper, but I did have a sauropod theme going, so it felt like it fit. So they analyzed and redescribed Patagosaurus, and they're saying this helps to better understand sauropod evolution. Now, Patagosaurus was a eusauropod that lived in the early Jurassic in what is now Patagonia, Argentina. It was first named in 1979 by Jose Bonaparte, and it had both basal and derived traits. And one of the derived traits is that it had pneumatized bones, hollow bones to make the body lighter, which was very important when it came to these sauropods becoming so large. They needed to have light bones. Yeah. Yeah, that's important for the early Jurassic. It might mean that the hollow bones were in many basal sauropods as well, too. So again, helping laying that foundation for these animals to grow so large or their descendants to become so large mm-hmm. now this next paper again it was published a little while ago but it goes with my theme here you just you were saving them up for a <laughs> really for a sauropod <laughs> theme yeah i think it worked out it has to do with air sac system in a titanosaur this was published in scientific reports by tito orleano and others we know tito we do we know a few of the authors on this paper. So they found 
an air sac system in an adult saltosaur titanosaur that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Brazil. And they did CT scans and histology of a dorsal vertebra and then made a 3D reconstruction. This dorsal vertebra is part of the holotype of a nanoid titanosaur that is still in the process of being described. So there's not too much details about the titanosaur yet, but they did say that it is about 18.7 feet or 5.7 meters long. There's also at least three specimens of this titanosaur, which they're saying is a new taxon. And it will be named and described in a later paper. So something to look forward to. They said that the titanosaur had pneumosteel bone. It's a type of bone tissue, quote, related to an avian-like air sac system, end quote. So basically it was pneumatized. Yeah, that's what they call the bone, the sort of invaded by air sacs, they sometimes say. Yes. And they're saying that this one was hyper pneumatized. There was extreme pneumaticity. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> if you're going to do pneumaticity, you might as well Go do extreme. It. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and this helps show that even smaller sauropods, because again, this one's about 19 feet or six meters long, could have air sacs, something, quote, inherited from their large bodied ancestors. But they said that doesn't mean that the early skeletal pneumaticity correlates, quote, with the evolution of large body size. Yeah. I mean, obviously, birds have a lot of pneumaticity, more than dinosaurs even yep. had. And they're very tiny. small. <laughs> yep. Some of them are could fit in your hand. So anyway, I think the biggest takeaway there is that we've got a new titanosaur coming. Yeah. Just got to wait to see what it's named. Mm -hmm. I hope they found more than just this vertebra. They did. They have at least three specimens. Okay, good. Now we have some other news. This is more about different dinosaur displays and dinosaur media. I'll start with the W.T. Bland Public Library in Mount Dora, Florida, has a Nothronychus on display. That's not one you usually see. It's a Therizinosaur. We covered it as the Dinosaur of the Day in episode 288. Ah, I thought Nothronychus sounded familiar. Yep, it's one of those weirdos. It was an herbivore, had a <laughs> pot belly, large claws. The genus name means slothful claw. Yeah, it's wonderful. <laughs> so you can see it in the lobby. It's 12 feet tall. Each year, this library has a new dinosaur exhibit, but it sounds like this one's going to stick around longer so visitors can enjoy it year-round. Nice. And it's scientifically accurate. They even made it a little fuzzy. I've never heard of Mount Dora, Florida before, but now I kind of want to go to see this giant <laughs> display. <laughs> yeah, they also have a T-Rex head and a life-size velociraptor to accompany it. You gotta have a T-Rex. Yes. That's like the standard thing you have if you have any dinosaurs. But it's just the head. The yeah. main focus is this Therizinosaur. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Be even better if it they like stuck one of its claws through the the skull, sort of like the opposite of the T Rex in the Smithsonian oh, yeah. chewing on the Triceratops. <laughs> that would be weird. <laughs> Next, the Soto District of Seattle, Washington, now has Dinos Alive exhibition, an immersive experience. And if you go, you can see 80 life-size dinosaurs, including T-Rex, Stegosaurus, Velociraptor, and Suchomimus. And you can explore the dinosaurs in VR. It says you can ride some of the dinosaurs. I couldn't find too many details on that. And there's something that they call a high-tech drawing area. You scan and you project your drawings of dinosaurs and you bring them to life alongside the scenery. Oh, that sounds familiar. Yeah. Well, 
might sound familiar because it's in the same space as the Van Gogh exhibit, which I think might have something similar. Well, oh, yep, 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 yep. Yeah. <laughs> so it's housed in this 77,000 square foot warehouse. And on the website, it says this exhibition is also in Washington, D.C. and Los Angeles. So there's a few places you can see it. Next, we've got a quick update. Last episode, we talked about David Attenborough's Dinosaurs the Final Day, which by the time this episode's released, you'll have been able to see it if you're in the UK on BBC. If you're in the US, you don't have to wait too long. We found out it's coming out May 11th. It's going to be on PBS Nova. That is pretty soon. Yeah. But it's called something different. It's called Dinosaur Apocalypse instead of Dinosaurs the Final Day. Why did they always change the name between the UK and the US? It's so confusing. I don't know. They always do that with books, too. Just leave the same name, people. <laughs> it makes it very confusing on the internet. Maybe they think Americans prefer apocalypse. Yeah, we love a good apocalypse here in America. <laughs> <I guess. laughs> that reminds me of that joke with the Finding Your Roots documentary in the US and in the UK. Apparently, it's called Who Do You Think You Are? <laughs> Very different tone. Yeah. And then last in the news, we've got a few Jurassic World updates. So first, the casts of Jurassic Park and Jurassic World recently reflected on Jurassic Park and how Dominion ties in in a Jurassic World Dominion legacy featurette. I feel spoilers coming. Are there spoilers? No spoilers. There aren't any spoilers? There are hints would say i don't think i'd call them spoilers okay but if you're really sensitive to spoilers i want to skip this part okay fair <laughs> enough sabrina's like the least sensitive to spoilers of anyone <laughs> no. <laughs> no this doesn't count as a spoiler i think it's gonna be a spoiler okay you tell me after i tell you okay so this feature it's about two and a half minutes long you see sam neil laura dern jeff goldblum talk about what it was like filming jurassic park Mm -hmm. And then Bryce Dallas Howard and Chris Pratt talk about what it was like to see the film and the dinosaurs. Colin Trevorrow says that Dominion is the culmination of the whole franchise, you know, being the sixth movie, the, the last movie. It's not spoilers yet. And then we get a little bit of a teaser on how all we know is that these character storylines intersect and they go on a, quote, scary adventure. That if anything else happened in a Jurassic Park movie, it would be very surprising. See, I don't think it was a spoiler. More of a teaser. Is that all? That's all. Yeah, it was nice to see like the nostalgia factor and you see everybody get together and talking about the movies. So the other update, maybe this one's more of a spoiler. I thought this was included with the previous one. <laughs> <laughs> There's a new image that shows Laura Dern as Ellie Sattler. With a baby Nasutoceratops. That's definitely a spoiler. Okay. <laughs> and just as a side note, in the image, it kind of looks like she's about to boop its nose. <laughs> <laughs> like poke it on the nose? Yeah. At least that's what it looks like to me. And Alan Grant is there watching, so we know they're in the scene together. What's really cool about this is the baby Nasutoceratops is an animatronic puppet. Oh, good. Because they're mixing puppet and CGI. I love that. Now, the last bit of update, this might also count as a spoiler. It definitely counts as a spoiler. Okay. <laughs> this one I could see. The featurette, not so much. But this last one, yeah, that's a spoiler. So in Dominion, the dinosaur to watch out for is Giganotosaurus, also known as the Giga. And it is 
meant to feel kind of like the Joker from The Dark Knight. Oh, geez. They're going to make it all like demented and freaky. Well, as Trevorrow put it, the Giga quote just wants to watch the world burn. And that's a quote associated with the Joker. Weird. Yeah. It kind of made sense with Indominus Rex because it was supposed to be like Frankenstein's monster and all like freaked out about its own existence and everything. But why would Giganotosaurus be like that? I guess they'll explain. I think we learn about it in the movie. So the Giga lives in Biosyn Valley, which is a rival of InGen. And in Dominion, governments around the world have captured some of the dinosaurs and Biosyn is housing them. Is that where Dodgson comes in? I think so. Because <laughs> of Biosyn in the book. Yeah. Now, there's supposed to be a research facility, but according to Trevile, quote, there's some other stuff going on. So I guess they... They turned the Giga into the Joker. I see. They're probably like torturing it, doing like animal testing or something. Something, yeah. There's speculation that Blue is going to somehow take down the Giga because Blue worked with Rexy to take down Indominus Rex in Jurassic World and Blue took down Indoraptor in Jurassic <laughs> World Fallen Kingdom. So, you know, Blue comes to save the day again, maybe. I guess that's really funny. I had forgotten that Blue, the Velociraptor, it was taking down all these huge animals. Yeah. <laughs> She's feisty. <laughs> <laughs> and now we're going to take another quick sponsor break. But when we get back, we'll be on to our dinosaur of the day, Euskelosaurus. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Euskelosaurus, which was a request from Crow via our Patreon and Discord. So thanks. Euskelosaurus was a platyosaurid sauropodomorph. See, still got that theme going that lived in the late Triassic, early Jurassic, in what is now South Africa and Lesotho in the Elliott Formation, as well as Zimbabwe in the Mapandi Formation. It looked like other sauropodomorphs. It had the long neck and tail, long arms, long claws, a small head. It probably walked on two legs. For a sauropodomorph, it was large and robust. It was estimated to be about 33 feet or 10 meters long. The type species is Euskelosaurus brownii. The fossils were found in 1863 by Alfred Brown, found limb bones and vertebrae, and then it was described in 1866 by Thomas Huxley. The genus name Euskelosaurus means good leg lizard, and the species name, you could probably guess, is in honor of Alfred Brown. In 1979, Heerden suggested that Euskelosaurus was more bow-legged based on the way that its femur was twisted. Weird. Yeah. Another specimen with a skull was found in 1994 in the Elliott Formation, and that got published about in the year 2000. And the specimen at the time may have been one of the oldest known dinosaurs. They found that Euskelosaurus was more basal than the sauropodomorph Riojasaurus, one of the earliest sauropodomorphs, because the neck was not quite as long and the brain case was slightly more primitive. Juvenile Euskelosaurus fossils were found between 1995 and 1997, and then published about in 2001, in the Elliott Formation. There are fossils of Euskelosaurus that include juveniles and adults. The fossils were found in a bone bed, and it's thought that those specimens were killed by flash floods. Based on the size of the juveniles, they were between 23 to 49 inches, or 58 to 125 centimeters long. They're probably, quote, precocious juveniles that could forage with their mothers. That is really small because you said the full-grown one was, what, 10 meters, mm -hmm. 33 feet long, and these are under a meter, yes. a lot of them? Yeah, so probably pretty young. 
And it makes sense that you'd think it was a flash flood because how else do you get so many of them buried at once? It's usually one of those big sort of burial events. Mm -hmm. Now, some scientists have in the past considered Euskelosaurus to be a wastebasket taxon. At one point, Platyosaurus was considered to be Euskelosaurus. Platyosaurus cullingworthi was named in 1924 by Sidney Houghton, and the species name is in honor of T.L. Cullingworth, who collected the fossils. Then in 1932, Friedrich von Huyn renamed it as its own genus, Platyosaurus, which means grandfather of Platyosaurus, and that's why the two names sound so similar. How can just adding, making it of us rather than us, make it grandfather? That seems, Latin is fancy. <laughs> it is. <laughs> that AV makes a really big difference. <laughs> but then in 1979, Jacques von Heerden reassigned it to Euskelosaurus. Adam Yates later suggested using Platyosaurus, but I think most people say Euskelosaurus. Other dinosaurs that lived around the same time and place as Euskelosaurus include the sauropodomorphs like Blicanosaurus, Melanorosaurus, and Maroctenos. And our fun fact, that's also a fun one to say, Titanosaurs, I'm keeping the theme going, Garrett, Oh, good. I was worried that we would stop hearing about sauropods. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't all sauropods. We talked about Triceratops and Tyrannosaurus. It feels like so long ago now. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Titanosaurs may have been such a successful bunch because of their nesting behavior. Huh. I don't think of them as having much of nesting behavior at all. Exactly. <laughs> the successful way to nest is to not really nest much. The generalists strategy. This was published by Lucas Fiorelli and others in Scientific Reports, and they described the first titanosaur nesting site from the late Cretaceous of Brazil that is also the most northernmost nesting site known in South America. It was found in Ponte Alto, Brazil, in the Serra da Galga formation, and it's the first confirmed dinosaur nesting area for Brazil. Cool. Yeah. They found several egg clutches that were partially preserved, some isolated eggs, and a lot of eggshell fragments. And one of those clutches had 10 eggs, five of which were nearly complete and spherical. Now, no embryos were found, but the eggs and the eggshell features match eggs found in other places that had titanosaur embryos, which is why they say this is a titanosaur nesting site. Yeah, yeah, spherical ones in general tend to be sauropods, I think. And then also, if it's the right time and location for a titanosaur instead of other sauropods, I can see why they got to that point. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is that these egg clutches were in two different levels. So they show evidence of colonial nesting and being part of a breeding area for titanosaurs. They're saying the titanosaurs kept going back each year to breed here. They were probably good conditions for their nests. The eggs were pretty well preserved. They had thin shells. Some of the eggshells had wide pores, which, quote, suggest a particular adaptability to the nesting microenvironments and their morphology could represent an apomorphic character for the titanosaur that nested in Ponta Alta site, end quote. So these wide pores could be a response in case the pores got clogged by sand grains, and then the wideness of the pores would still allow gases to diffuse through the thin eggshell. Yeah, we've seen before that there's a pretty high correlation between 
pore size and if they get buried. So mm-hmm. usually the ones with big pores are the ones that are buried. Yeah, they're saying the pores suggest, quote, an adaptive response to reproduction under relatively arid environmental conditions, end quote. So this nesting site was a semi-arid area and well-drained. And it's probable that the titanosaurs incubated their eggs within a sandy substrate. In other words, they buried them and left. Yes. <laughs> it's not usually what you think of it with incubation, but it's still technically incubation. It was warm enough for them. Several of the eggs overlapped and were in contact with each other. And the way that the eggs were arranged in the lower layer, the eggs in the center were a bit lower, shows that they are probably in a bowl-shaped structure, which is a common feature in titanosaur clutches that are buried. Now, titanosaurs lived all over the world, and they were successful due to a lot of different traits. Titanosaur nesting sites have been found all over, including in Spain, France, Romania, India, Argentina, now Brazil. And one reason for titanosaur success was probably their generalist nesting behavior in different environments and with different strategies, though the fact that they had to depend on specific environments for their nests may have been a big part of why they eventually went extinct, but that's a different story. Also, the the giant impactor might have had something to do with it. Which changed the environment for them, yes. (laughs) And they had to eat a lot of food. It's hard for huge stuff to survive. Yeah, but they were successful for a long time. And part of it could be this nesting strategy. Could be. It doesn't really sound that diverse of a strategy to me, that you're always burying it somewhere warm. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it's the way they bury it. Yeah, that's true. Because I think other places have talked about burying it near compost or near volcanic activity and things like that, as long as you can find something warm. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. If you'd like to see links to any of the news stories we covered or read about our dinosaur of the day, head over to inodino.com. Thanks again, and until next time.